Hello, I'm Terry Leach, and welcome to Clubhouse Conversations. Every summer in Kansas City, 25 men have one simple mission, to win. Starting pitchers, corner power hitters, middle relievers, speedy gloves up the middle, closers, utility infielders, backup catchers, and they're each remembered here. From 1969 to last year, all Royals careers have been preserved with the most comprehensive collection of facts, memories, and stories in existence. Welcome to Clubhouse Conversation. Well, here we are, mid-November 2014 in Kansas City, where it is frigid outside. Of course, that's not how it is out in Florida, where Terry Leach is, and he joins us today on Clubhouse Conversation. Yeah, it's Davo welcoming you in for a chat with former 1989 Royal Terry Leach. You remember him coming out of the Royals' bullpen with that quote-unquote funky delivery. Some called it sidearm, some called it submarine. One thing was sure, hitters did not have fun facing it throughout his Major League career. Terry Leach began at the Major League level with the New York Mets, was part of that 86 World Series team in New York, came over to KC eventually in a trade, and then won another World Series pitching for the Minnesota Twins in 1991. Spent a number of years at the major league level, did Terry Leach, and even a number of years at the minor leagues. We plan on covering all of that and so much more with a special emphasis on his Royals days as Terry joins us now on Clubhouse Conversation from sunny Florida. Terry, how's everything going with you? Everything's been going well. I'm, uh, like you said, I'm enjoying the weather here in Florida, and everything's doing great. <laughs> yeah, about 80 degrees warmer out there, as we were talking about off the oh, air. So. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Rubbing that in here. So <laughs> update us on what you're doing these days. Uh, I own a little company in West Palm Beach uh, called Designers Logistics Support, and it's, it's uh, just like baseball. I work with interior designers now. And so um, we have a company that uh, we we have warehouses and we do storage for the designers when they order their um, furniture and accessories and mirrors and rugs and things. And, and I have crews that will take them and uh, deliver them to the houses and set it all up and make their houses look real good uh, out on Palm Beach and Jupiter Island and all around here. Gosh, that sounds fun. Sounds pretty out there, too. Uh, well, it is pretty, and it, every every day is something different, and some of these designers really come up with some very, very nice things. Yeah, yeah. Well, are you still following baseball much? And then, if so, what did you think of the Royals this year in 2014? Well, I was real happy because I had been talking to Ed Hearn earlier uh, in the year, and, uh, well, just, just a little bit before the series, and I was talking about a man it's been a long time since KC's been uh, in playoffs or doing anything, and all of a sudden, boom, there they are. And I was real happy for them. That was, that was a nice, it was nice for them to get back into the playoff situation. Hopefully the first of many to come. Um, now, i got to admit, I'm kind of embarrassed. I haven't read your book yet. I didn't even know you had a book until I was prepping this interview, which kind of is a blow to me because I feel like I'm on top of everything with, you know, with former well, Royals. Know, a, lot, a lot of people didn't know I had a book. <laughs> <laughs> well, That was the sad thing about it. <laughs> well, I'm going to be ordering that one soon. It's called Things Happen for a Reason, the True Story of an Itinerant Life in Baseball. So talk about the book and tell us what that's all about. Well, it, um, it started out... Um, we were just gonna. It, it was back in a time when baseball was having a little problem when they had the strike uh, and they didn't have the World Series. And we um, we've been talking about doing it for a long time. And uh, then 
when we finally put it together, instead of me just having a lot of people tell stories, they just uh, they decided to make it just my whole story of how I started out in Selma, Alabama, and made it up to the big leagues and then some of the things that went on uh, while I was there. Well, I know that David Cohn was somebody that uh, helped out a bit with that book. Are are you two pretty you know pretty tight still these days? We see each other every once in a while. You know, everybody's so spread out, and uh, you don't get to see anybody too much. Down here in Florida, there are a lot of the ball players that live right around here. But I used to laugh and say, you know, the only time I ever saw them was when we'd go to New York and do an autograph show or something. <laughs> and you have to go up there to see them, and they may only live about five miles away from you. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know how that is. Well, are you ready to go way back and start from the from the beginning? Sure, sure. What do you want to know? Well, let's do it. Well, you went to high school there at Selma High, like you mentioned, in Alabama. You graduated in 72. You played baseball and football. So you ended up at Auburn later on. But before we talk about that, what was your best sport growing up, and which was your favorite sport growing up as well? Well, when I was younger, football was my best sport, I think. But um, I wised up real quick when everybody started getting bigger than me. Right and uh, and getting hit wasn't quite as easy as it used to be. So I I quickly made the decision, uh, a good career move, that uh, maybe I better just stick with baseball. I'm guessing you were probably a quarterback. No, actually, I was a fullback. Really? Yes, indeed. Okay. Usually, it seems like the, the good they, pitchers are quarterbacks. Right. Well, they uh, Ronnie Baines, who was my coach to begin with. Um, Wanted, said if I'd been there longer. I didn't play but my senior year. And uh, it was kind of a wild story. My dad really didn't want me to play football. And he had had a scholarship to Auburn on football back in the 30s. He used to wear the leather helmets and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> and he just he didn't want me to play too much football. He thought it would get my legs hurt, and he, he didn't want me to do it. So I kind of held back. And then my senior year, they talked me into coming back out, and so I became the fullback. But they told me that they would, you know, would have liked me to be a quarterback if uh, I'd been there longer. But there was a problem. My hands are small, and the football really doesn't fit in there that well. So it uh, it, w- it would have been tough on me. Yeah, well, you made the right choice. You ended up at, uh, at Auburn like your dad for college. What made you choose Auburn? Uh, well, they were, basically, they were the only one to offer me a scholarship. <laughs> <laughs> well, they were my favorite school. I've always loved Auburn. I've been an Auburn fan all my life. And I, I did have, like, a small junior college offer me a, a scholarship. But um, uh, my coach in high school was uh, Scotty Long for baseball, and he had played at Auburn. He was played baseball and football there. Um, and he had connections with, uh, Coach Nix at, at at Auburn, and he talked to him about myself and my shortstop that played with me in Selma, and we ended up going there together. Uh, Mickey Miller and I went up there, and he was the starting shortstop, and I eventually became one of one of the starting pitchers. That's a cool story. Now, your major there, I, I need you to break this down to me in English. Business Administration and Personnel Management industri- Industrial Relations. What on earth is that? <laughs> Well, you know what? That 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 has that was so long ago they don't even offer that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it it was a different kind of uh uh kind of a major. The the way I decided on it myself and Dave Duffner, who was my first baseman there, we were in business and we came to the point where you had to declare what your major was gonna be. 
And we got together one day, and we went through all the curriculums, and we found the one thing that didn't take any more accounting classes. So we <laughs> took it. <laughs> That's great. I did the same thing with economics. I didn't want to take any economics classes, so <laughs> I'm with you on that. You know, I hear you. I hear you. I kind of like the economics, and I, I enjoyed the finance stuff that I took, too. I, uh, it's real funny. When I was on scholarships, my, my grades were just so-so. All of a sudden, when I had to go back for my last year and I had to pay for it, those grades went way up. <laughs> I don't know what happened there. <laughs> it's amazing how that works. So it is. Now, at what age did you develop the funky motion that would help you become such a good, you know, pitcher later on? Was that high school, college, or the pros where you developed the whole no, summary well, stuff? No, it was. It was actually. I went through college, uh, high school and college. I threw not exactly overhand. I was three quarter. I was, but I was up top. And at that time, I used to. Go at 93 to 95 miles an hour. Uh, had good movement, had no breaking ball, no change up really, just threw the ball hard and it moved a lot. And then my senior year, I uh, hurt my elbow, didn't know what it was, but it ended up it would have been, if, if they had the uh, technology back then, it would have been the Tommy John's problem uh, with the ulnar collateral ligament. Mm. And um, what we all I did was let it heal back up. But when I let it heal, it didn't. I never could get the speed back to where it used to be. So you know, I went from throwing fairly good down, dropping down to around eighty-eight or ninety, maybe at the most, and being kind of mediocre. Or I could drop it over to the side, which um, I developed that once I got into the minor leagues. Um, actually, I went to a tryout with the Atlanta Braves, and uh, I threw, and I was thinking, you know, there's no way they're going to find anybody out of this tryout. It was in Atlanta Stadium, and there were only about 20-something people there, and I think 11 of them were pitchers, and I was the next to the last pitcher to throw, and I was real close to saying, I'm not going to, you know, I was, I was like ready to go because I was saying, they're not going to take anybody. I'd already gone to one tryout before for Cincinnati, threw one inning, struck out three hitters. They said, thank you very much, see you later. And but I said, you know what? My dad went to a lot of trouble to get get me into this, finding somebody that could find find this. So I went in, I threw, and like I said, I did not have my best speed or anything. I was still, you know, upper eighties, and it was okay, a little bit of movement. But while I was there, I made up a changeup. Never thrown one in my life, really, and I just made it up, and it worked really well that day. Just that one or two pitches, and then. I remember one of the pitches I was pitching to a left-handed hitter, and I hit him right in the neck with a fastball and then threw him a changeup on the next pitch. And so it was kind of ugly, but it worked well. And when I walked off the field, uh, the Braves asked me if I would like to sign a contract with them. So I did and went to the minor leagues. And then um, Kenny Rowe was the pitching coach for me in Greenwood, South Carolina. And he watched me for a few minutes and said, have you ever thought about throwing sidearm? I told him I had played with it before but never really done a whole lot. So we started working on it, and it just came out that I got a whole lot of movement out of it. I had good control with it, and I even developed a nice slider out of it. So that's, that's how I got into it. It was a necessity. I'd hurt my arm, uh, couldn't do what I used to do, so I had to find some other way to get people out. 
Well, it definitely worked. Now, one question I wanted to ask you about. So let's t- take a half step back. So you got drafted by Boston in January of 76, but then they voided the pick, which meant you ended up pitching for Baton Rouge in the independent Gulf States League. So before we talk about Baton Rouge, so why did that pick by Boston get voided? I'm confused about that. For guys, I don't think I, don't think I was actually eligible for the draft at that time. Uh, some of my birthday, where it came up or something, um, it, it, I, I just don't think I was really eligible. It didn't really matter because I wasn't going to take it anyway. I mean, they weren't offering hardly any, any money, and I had another year of college left. I felt like I was on the best team um, around the South to play on, and, and which ended up being right. We went to the, ended up winning the SEC that year and then the South region and then going to the College World Series. And Boston only offered four thousand dollars. So oh, I'm thinking, well, I can do without that, but I'd like to stay here with my with my friends and, and try to win this thing. Yeah. So, what are your favorite memories of the College World Series? Well, it was a lot of fun, but we only saw two games. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, we had a little we had a little off time in between. Um, it seemed like a week or two, a couple of weeks that we didn't play. And, you know, we're doing some uh, inter-squad scrimmaging and playing against each other, but we didn't have any live games. And it kind of affected us. Um, when we got out there, we, when we went there, our pitching staff was rated number two in the country with, um, with, with everything that they put together for those stats. But when we got out there, we just were not very good pitching. Our hitting jumped up and did very well, but we were giving up a ton of runs. So we, we got beat by Clemson and then by Maine. And uh, we were out there. But it, I tell you what, it was a great experience to get to go out to Omaha. Yeah. Well, so then you go on to pitch for Baton Rouge along with one other future MLB pitcher, a guy named Tom Brown. But then, so the team folds August 13th of 76. So the first question is, how'd you end up with Baton Rouge? The second question is, why did the team fold? Well, um, I was back at Auburn and I was going to summer school and I was going to try to finish up, you know, my degree. That was after my senior year. And uh, my friend, Mickey Miller, I told you about a little while ago, was my, my, um, he was played shortstop at Selma with me, but ended up at, uh, at second base at Auburn. But um, he somehow they made contact with him, and they wanted him to ask me if I wanted to come out and play. So we took off and went to Baton Rouge and got with this little team. And, I mean, we made a lot of money there, though. It was well worth it. We made $350 a month. Playing there, so we were we were Rico Americanos. Let me tell you, <laughs> so we we got to play, and that was all kind of fun, and it was a great experience because we'd never really done anything like that, the traveling and all. Baton Rouge was the only team that was not in Texas. All the other teams were in Texas, like Beeville and Corpus Christi and Brownsville, um, Harlingen. I can't even remember them all, but um, so we got hooked up with that and started playing. And like I said, it was, it, this was like, um, it was an independent team. And it's kind of wild that off of that one team, two of us did make it to the big leagues. It was, you know, that just shows that there's talent out there that the scouts have not, well, they may have seen it but gave up on it or, or whatever, but if you give them a chance, they can, they can make it to the big leagues you know, or at least make it into pro ball and do well. And so we stayed there and we played, and, and the reason uh, it went, uh, it ended was the team went bankrupt. Hmm. Um, it, you know, it's, it's a tough to make a, a living off of that as, a, as an owner 
of these teams. Um, our owner really worked hard at it, but there was always problems, always something to do, always, you know, expenses. And when we went bankrupt for the last time, we had won the first half of the season. We had a very good team. We were in the second half, and I think we were ahead by seven games with only 14 games left in the season. And we got a call while we were down in Brownsville, Texas, and we were in borrowed kinder care vans is all we could travel in at that time, that uh, the team had no money and we could not get paid. And we would not been paid in three or four weeks. We were already all broke. So we all took off. Said, well, we can't play anymore. We, we, we didn't have any money. So we started driving back to, to Baton Rouge. Along the way, uh, the president of the league, who was Bobby Bragan at that time, called us and said, if we didn't stop in Corpus Christi and play the game, none of us would ever see the, a chance at the big leagues. We're thinking, you know, there's no chance we're going to make it anyway, so what does that matter? So we kept on going. We went back to Baton Rouge. We got there. We had like 14 people staying in one apartment. Uh, and some of the guys even had a, a couple of wives that had to stay there with us. So it was it was quite an experience, you know, uh, my, my first professional baseball. Uh, and we went bankrupt. And I did get paid for two months, so I made $700 that year playing baseball. <laughs> there you go. And you can live on it today, right? Not. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, Still have it. <laughs> so then, so 1977, so you mentioned, so you end up signing with Atlanta. Then the now defunct Greenwood team in the now defunct Western Carolinas League. So you were good that year. You had a two five five your first year in pro ball there, at least organized, quote-unquote, pro ball. So right, what do right. you remember about uh, about that? And where was Greenwood at, by the way? Was that What state is that? Greenwood, South Carolina. Wow, where is that? And that that's a good question. I've heard of Greenville. I was in Alabama, and I'm saying, you can't get there from here. Right. Uh, it was, um, gosh, I can't even explain where it was. But it was a beautiful <laughs> little town. We had a great time, very nice people. And... Um, it was a different kind of experience for me going to pro ball from college because in college you call the coach coach. Well, you get up here, and I walk in there my first night that I get there and the game gets over and I'm looking to see who I'm supposed to talk to about, uh, you know, the season was already going when I got there. It was it was only about two weeks before it was halftime um, for the season. And I'm looking right now and I'm asking, are you Coach Rowe, Coach Rowe? And you don't do that in pro ball. They all go by their first names. You're Kenny or, you know, Davey or Johnson or whatever. You don't call them coach. But I, So I embarrassed myself right off the bat. <laughs> but it was a very good experience. It was very – it was it was old-timey, let me tell you. It was just a old ballpark and a very small town. But like I said, people are so friendly. They invite you over for Sunday uh, supper. And uh, we we had friends that would take us out riding horses during the day that we would meet, and we met uh, guys that could play and sing at the at the local little taverns that uh, I ended up seeing much later on in my life uh, at other places in other states. They'd be playing, and and they would remember us and talk and sit around with us. So Greenwood was really a good experience, but it, it, I don't think, I don't know if anybody does that anymore just like that. Yeah, well wh- one of your battery mates there was a future Royal, Larry Owen. Do you remember him at all? Do I remember? He's my one of my best buddies. We lived together. Oh, really? <laughs> um, oh, yeah, yeah. When um, 
when when people would see one of us, they'd see the see the other. Huh. So it was like, and we were always out. If you got to remember, back in the seventies, this was back when disco was big and wearing your silky shirts and and all that kind of stuff. And and he and I were always out at uh, we we well, we were kind of running around a good bit back in the we were young boys at that time, and uh, they'd call us Disco Doggy and Disco Daddy, <laughs> and we were we were always running around together. And we were very very good friends for a long time. Very in cool. fact, we even stayed together. Uh, we're roommates in, in Savannah, Georgia, when we went to Double A. That's cool. Well, you spent the next few years in the minor league system. Now, speaking of Savannah, let's talk about that. So, 77 to 80, you had good numbers. You pissed in Kinston, Savannah, Richmond. So, I was actually born in Savannah, 1980, about, well, about, I guess, three months after that season ended there, and you were there that wow. year. So, I was wondering, you know, what was it like pitching there and your favorite memories of Savannah? Savannah was a wonderful, wonderful town. I really loved it, and I was there parts of like three years. And in fact, you know, they used to think I was going to run for mayor. I'd been in there for so long. <laughs> um, we we used to live out on Wilmington Island, which is, as you know, probably is halfway between the beach and the ballpark. Uh-huh. And we had a a, a, comp, uh, a complex uh, with you know two, two apartments there together. There was a little house uh, and. Uh, Ball players in both sides. There were six of us total out that way, and I loved it so much there that I actually um, I met my wife while I was playing there. She was not from Savannah, but she had come up there. We had met before, and she came up there, and we eventually, about five or six, seven years later, ended up getting married, and we named our daughter Savannah oh. because we enjoyed the town so much, and it was so great. And what you remember about it the most is a, it's a beautiful town. B, they had great food, and C, they had had those no films that would eat you up at night if you didn't know how to <laughs> how to protect yourself out there on the ball field. Yeah, yeah, I think they're called the sand nets these days, aren't they? Yeah, the sand fleas, sand yeah. nets. Yes, they would eat you up. And while we were there, we found out that the Avon uh, Skin So Soft is great on it. You use that, they don't bother you too bad. So we would all we'd all smell pretty sweet. <laughs> but um, we would not tell the other teams about it. So we'd be okay, and they'd be out there slapping and scratching and fighting these sand fleas off the whole game, but we we would be pretty safe. <laughs> That's a cool story. So it was kind of weird reading about this. So the Braves release you in July of 80, which doesn't really make sense. You had ERAs of 328, 196, 193, 321 at various minor league stops throughout those few years. I mean, what reason did they give you, and, and how disappointing was that? Well, it was very disappointing, especially at the age I was, you know, I was getting older and I was trying to make some advances, uh, and that getting released definitely didn't hurt. But what they did was we already had um, a number one draft pick in Tim Cole and a number three, Steve Bedrosian, who turned out to be pretty darn bueno. Yeah. And, yeah. And then that year they had somehow or another they through trades and all they had three number one draft picks: uh, Craig McMurtry, Ken Daly, and Jim Acker. Yep, yep. And all of them ended up in the big leagues and did well. Well, when you got three number one draft picks and a number three, and a few other guys that had been drafted in there, and you got one guy who was not drafted at all, just was picked up. Well, it's pretty pretty simple in who you're going to let go. You know, they got money invested in everybody else, 
you let the other other guy go. So I was five and one at the time, in fact, and I was doing some starting and relieving at the same time. I'd relieve in between starts sometimes, but um, they just decided that I was expendable and he let me go. Wow. Well, you were just one year away from making your big league debut at that time with the Mets in '81. But I mean, did it at that time to you? Did it feel like you were be you know being treated as a prospect? Did it feel like you were given you know given a fair chance oh, that you, you might make it? No, not at, not at all. Well, I mean, I thought at first I was getting a chance because I was doing so well, and like I said, they even made me a starter when they ran short on pitching. Um, then when they released me. And this was really kind of degrading. We drove from Savannah, Georgia, all night long to Knoxville, Tennessee, and got there, you know, early, early morning. I got to get a little bit of sleep and then go to the ballpark uh, that afternoon for the game. And as we're getting ready for the game, the manager calls me in and says, Terry, um, uh, the the Braves have made a decision that they're going to let you go. And it was, you know, it, I was shocked. I couldn't, I couldn't believe it. And I, and I asked him, Eddie Haas was the manager at that time. And I said, well, Eddie, do you, do you think it, that's the best thing? I said, do you think I'll ever be able to make it to the big leagues, or is this it? And he told me, no, I, I think your fastball is not, you know, that is not that good because I was only throwing 80 miles an hour now that I was going sidearm and it hurt my arm. And he said, your, your breaking ball is flat. And, and not that good. So I thought I was done. So uh, I hung around that night, and they flew me out back to Savannah um, that next day, and I got there and hung out with one of my buddies there for a little while uh, at that day that I got back. And then the next morning I was packing my car up to get ready to drive back to Selma, and I got a call from the Mets saying that they wanted to um, – picked me up and wanted me to go to double A in Jackson, Mississippi to take the place of a player that just got moved up to triple A, which who was Rick Anderson, who ended up being a very, very good yeah. friend of mine. So man, I was elated, you know, so I, I threw my stuff in the car. I put on my Willie Nelson on the road again tape <laughs> and took off driving. And I spent the night in, in uh, Selma halfway there. I'd see my mom and dad for the night. And then the next day took on off, went to Jackson, Mississippi Got there. The team was actually in Midland, so then they flew me out there, and I and I got up with the Mets, and um, you know, starting off on a new team and a new start, a new chance. It made me feel good. So, like I said, I was five and one when I got released, and at the end of that season, with uh, with the Mets, I actually went five and one in Jackson. They made me a starter, and I had a one point nine ERA. Yeah. So I had a very good finish. So it, it it was tough on me to figure I was ten and two and had been released during the year. So I, I said it was just a tough league out here. Yeah, no doubt. Well, I mean, so you, like you mentioned, July of eighty, you go to the Mets in Jackson, Tidewater through mid eighty three. You kind of bounced around there uh, before a trade to the Cubs. But then you also, of course, pitched in forty two games up in New York between 81 and 82 actually had 21 games each of those two years so let's start by talking about 81 your first ever call to the big leagues where were you at who told you and and how'd you find out you were going up there uh well we were in charleston west virginia um jim acres was was our uh manager and it was the last day of like a 10-day road trip i had no we 
we were on a bus because something was wrong with the planes right then. I don't know. For some reason, I, no, we were flying, but for some reason, we had come in on a bus, and I had no clean clothes left. And at this time, that's when having a perm was cool. So I had a perm, but it was blown out. I mean, it was it was in desperate need of either being cut off or redone. And and I get a call at seven o'clock in the morning, saying, "Terry, they calling you up to New York. You got to go right now." I mean, it didn't take me long to get packed. Now I jumped on a bus and went to the airport, and the airport in Charleston is up on top of a mountain. So this bus I was taking, it was like struggling to get me up to the top of the mountain to get me to the airport. So I get on the plane, and I take off, and I'm meeting the Mets. This is the year that it was a strike that had the two-month strike in the middle of the season. And uh, somebody had gotten hurt try, you know, uh, during, that off, during that off period. And when the strike ended and everybody's coming back, they needed another pitcher. So with me being still in shape and ready to go, they, they called me up. Nice. So I'm meeting the team in – Chicago to play the Cubs for my, you know, just to begin the season again. Well, I fly in there, get to the airport, get my luggage and my travel bag. I always use this old army green duffel bag instead of anybody's, you know, like Braves or Mets or Twins or whatever. I said, this thing's so ugly it doesn't match anybody's. I'm going to take it with me. Because I'd been moved around and traded so much, I just, I just go have my own. And that's, that's what I was carrying my equipment in. I had one ugly suitcase, and I jumped in a cab, and I said, I got to go to Wrigley Field. This guy takes off driving. On the way there, we're on the, turn, the interstate going to the ballpark. We have a flat tire. <laughs> I'm out of that cab. I'm helping this guy change a flat tire along the interstate. I said, I got to get to the ballpark. You don't understand. This is my first day. So they finally get me to the ballpark, and everything was already going on. The teams were already in. The crowds already getting there. They wouldn't let me in the stadium. <laughs> they didn't know who I was. They didn't know I was coming. I didn't look like a ball player because, I was, like I said, my hair was all blown out. I'm in dirty clothes. I got a green duffel bag hanging there with me. <laughs> finally, somebody sent word down. They let me in, and I got to go inside and go into the, the locker room, which, you know, it's iconic at, uh, at Wrigley Field, there, that, that old stadium. It was so great. The, the, the locker room was like wood floors. And, I mean, it took you back to like Babe Ruth kind of days right. where it was. And they brought me in and said, okay, there's your locker over there. And I go sit down. And Dave Keenan is my locker mate. <laughs> and, and Kong was, he's pretty stern kind of a guy. <laughs> and I was like, Mr. Kong, how you doing? Nice to meet you. I was a little, little scared and very quiet. Just kind of sat there and uh, just so happy to be there. And it was very nice that uh, they they gave me that day off, that night. I didn't have to pitch that day, but I did get in the next day to get the pitch. So uh, they, they got my feet wet real quick. The only problem was I gave up a home run in my first inning yeah. to Dave Lum. And uh, it landed in the basket. You know how they have the little the wire baskets on the wall that kind of goes around yeah. the stadium? It didn't even make it all the way out of the park. It landed in that. But, <laughs> and it would have been Ed Lynch's first win, except with that it tied it up. And uh, so he lost his win, and, they brought, and then I finished my inning, and then we went in. I don't know if we went to extra innings, but we did end up winning the game. But uh, I, I was I felt bad that. Ed didn't get his first win. He pitched very well that day. Huh. 
Now, how'd you like pitching for Joe Torrey that year in 81? Very good. Joe was a great guy. I, I tell you what, he he was fun to be around. He, he, you know, you know, he definitely knows what's going on in the game. He knows how to he knows how to use his players and all. Uh, with the Mets at that time, he probably just didn't have the most talent in the world to have to work with because we ended up with a lot of rookies and all around. But I enjoyed being with Joe. And later on, when after he he got out of managing for a while if you remember it went into television and all out with the angels and i remember one time i guess it's after i got traded to kansas city later on that uh, i was walking by him and i stopped and i said joe I'm, I'm terry leach just in case he didn't remember and he says terry i know who you are and i told him i said i just want to thank you for you know taking the chance on bringing me up to the big leagues and he he told me, he said, don't thank me. He said, you did it all on your own. You you made it happen. So he was always very nice to me. That's cool. Well, so then you're back in New York for part of 82. This time it's George Bamberger. Now you made you know one start that year, and it's one of the best starts in team history. I'm sure you remember this very well. So Rick Ownby was supposed to start at the end of the year, had a blister though, so they put you in, and a 10-inning one-hitter against Philly with seven Ks and six walks. Tell us about that day. That that was a little bit different. Yeah, they told me like the night before that uh, that Rick gonna be was you know had a blister and he wasn't gonna be able to to uh, start and they wanted me to start this game and this it was the the last series of the year and it was the first game so it was the Friday night of a Friday Saturday Sunday to end the year and I figured what it was is they were letting me pitch so I could get blown out so they could release me and not have to worry about me anymore. <laughs> But I went out there, and I was very calm and relaxed. I felt good. I warmed up. Uh, my my catcher warming up was Ron Reynolds, and he didn't tell me this while I was warming up, but after the game he said, he said, Leachie, I didn't want to say anything, but you had some of the best stuff I ever saw you have out there warming up. And I went on and, yeah, went out there and just, you know, that was my first start in like two years or two and a half years or something. And they had Pete Rose in the lineup, and Mike Schmidt, and uh, Gary Maddox. I mean, it was a, it was a pretty good team out there. And I was very fortunate. I I just started, got on a little roll, and I I felt very confident that night. I did have good stuff. I did walk six people, but it was because I could. When I got behind, I didn't give in to anybody. I felt like I could hit the corner. I could do this. Could do that. Or if I didn't, I could get the next man. And that's exactly what happened. It just kept working out just right. Well, 1983, you spent the season at Tidewater. Then you got traded to the Cubs. But before you ever pitched in a game with them, they sent you back to Atlanta, musical chairs here, April of 84. So you'd be with the Braves in Richmond for about a month in 84. And then you got released and went right back to the Mets in Tidewater. So, I mean, how much of a whirlwind was it you know, becoming by then? Well, I tell you, um, I was happy to go with the Cubs. I thought that was going to be nice. But I did not enjoy spring training in Arizona at all. I really? just did not like the aridness of it. Didn't I was I felt terrible. I, I was I felt sick the whole time. I lost weight. And anyway, when George Bamberger not George Bamberger, but um oh my I went blank, my manager at that he had just come from the Mets to the Cubs to become their manager. And he and he didn't care for the way I, I pitched. So they, they had had me work with Kent DeCalvey and 
trying to figure out some things. And I told them, I don't throw underhand. I'm sidearm, and I get the same motion. But they, they didn't care for it either. So they ended up trading me back to Atlanta. And uh, that was – it was very nice to get back there because Larry Owen, my old catcher, was there. Yes. And um, Mike Reynolds was there. And, and so it was great that my old friends were still around and I got to be with them. But you're right. I didn't get a whole lot I, – I pitched better when I pitch a lot. And at that point with that team, I only was getting to pitch an inning every few days coming in a spot here. And I just never really got a good rhythm and a roll going. So, uh, from what I understand, at that time, Ted Turner was with the Braves, was having some uh, financial, not difficulties, but they were trying to straighten out some things, and they looked to see what my salary was. And since I had been in the big leagues a little bit, my minor league salary was fairly decent for Triple A. So when they looked at that, they said, "Well, we need to let him go." So we actually we were playing the Braves were playing the Mets at that time. So one day I was on the 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 Braves playing against the Mets. The next day I was on the Mets playing against the Braves <laughs> in Triple A. So I got to pitch against it, and I think I got a save my first time out against the Braves. So and the, the Richmond team. So it was it was pretty wild. And I would, you know, I had such good friends on both teams that when we would go to Tidewater to play when I was with the Braves, I would go see all the Mets players and hang out with them at night, and then. Vice versa, when we when I was with the Mets, when we come over to Richmond and see them, so uh, I was very lucky. I always had good good friends and good people wherever I went. They were they were quality people everywhere I was. Well, eighty five and eighty six, you were again really good between Tidewater and New York. In New York, you had a two nine one in eighty five, a two seven zero in eighty six. Now, of course, the eighty six Mets win the World Series, but you weren't on the postseason roster. Now, it's likely because I read that you separated your shoulder on August thirtieth of eighty six against Richmond. You were trying to score on a double from first base as a runner. So, I mean, did that kind of <laughs> cost you a year? Was that it? Yeah, that was it. I was having a very good year. Um, I had been up. To the big leagues. I did make it up to the big uh, to New York at the beginning. Ed Lynch got hurt his first start, and so they brought me up the first week, and I stayed for six weeks. Didn't get to pitch a whole lot, but I did okay there. I only gave up one run while I was there. And but then uh, I think Doug Fisk had also been on the disabled list. He got well, and they brought him up, so they replaced him with me. Uh, replaced me with him rather. And so I went back to Tidewater, and I was having a very good year. I was pitching very good. I had good stuff. Just everything worked. And right at the end of the year, we needed to. We had a couple of games left, and we needed to win one out of the two games against the Braves to get to go to get to be in the playoffs for the Governor's Trophy in um, in the International League. And Sammy Palazzo was the manager, and he asked me if I would mind starting a game. And I said, no, that that's fine with me, and I'll do it. So I go out, and I start this game. In the first inning, I, I don't throw but six, seven pitches, get out, you know, I have a strikeout and a couple of ground balls go in. We hit, we go back out. I pitch again, six or seven pitches. I don't know if I threw 12 pitches through two innings at all. I was, I mean, I was, I had really good stuff. And it comes, it comes in that inning, and while in AAA, while you're playing another National League team, the pitchers had to hit. While you know when we played against all the uh, American League teams, we did not. And the, this was my first at bat in years. <laughs> so um, I, somehow or another, I walked. 
I, I think it scared the other pitcher that he had to had to pitch against another pitcher here. So I walked. I'm on first base, and that, then our next hitter hits one into the gap in right center field, and I take off running. And I could run a little bit. I wasn't slow. I could run a little bit. Now I, I hit second, and I'm headed to third, but I felt for sure they were going to hold me up at third. But Sammy kept waving me in, and when I hit third, I took a big wide turn because I wasn't ready for it. I, I keep telling everybody I was high-fiving everybody going by the opposing dugout because I was so far out there. And then I'm coming in, and I can see the catcher's just about to catch the ball, and I know he's going to slam down on me and put a tag on me. I said, he's going to break my legs in here. So I said, well, I'm just going to dive off to the side here and swipe the plate with my left hand as I go by. Well, I don't know exactly what happened, but I went straight up in the air. I actually went over the catcher. <laughs> Landed, came back on his other side. He swung around, missed me. I landed on the plate and did like a somersault and came up on the other side. <laughs> and I was safe, and that was scoring our first run. The only problem was I landed on my shoulder and separated my shoulder at the same time. But I didn't know I had done that quite yet. I knew I hurt. But I went in to the dugout, and as I'm coming in, all the players, they're very quick-witted there. They had their pieces of paper with my diving scores on it, you know, eights and nines and just like being in the Olympics. And I got there and I'm just covered with dirt all over me and I'm trying to clean off and we got the, the next guy got out real quick and I'm sucking wind because I just ran from third to home and dove on home plate and knocked my breath out a little bit. And so I get cleaned up, put my hat on, I go out there to the mound to pitch and my first pitch goes about 40, instead of going to the catcher, it went about 45 degrees to the left, almost like straight across the first baseline. And, and and the catcher's just looking at me. I said, I don't know, give me another ball. And I threw the second one, got it to him. I called him out. I said, I can't I can't do this. And so they came in, took me out, and they, they took me back into the uh, dressing room. And like I said, this was against the Braves. So when I went back there and the guys knowing I was hurt, I not only had – some of the Met players coming to see what was wrong. I had some of the Braves players. Larry Owen was one of them. Came in there to check on me to see how it was going. And um, Ron Garden, Garden Hire was one of the, the Mets guys that was with me. You know, he's the manager of the Twins. Yeah. And they were taking x-rays of my shoulder, and it was showing a gap in there. The doctor told me, he says, oh, I heard you were going to go back up tomorrow. <laughs> so I just had to hang my head right then, uh, just the way things were going. Yeah, well, that what about the 86 Mets? Because, you know, they kind of have that notorious, quote-unquote, bad boy image, you know, some of that stuff. What, what was that team like being a part of? i tell you what, they were a lot of fun. They were a close-knit team. Um, they they liked to have fun, but then when, when they got to the park, they were all business. They played hard every night. They were very intense, and uh, they – they were just meant to win that year. It was just what they were supposed to do. When you got like Ray Knight and Jerry Carter and Keith Hernandez, those those are three of the most intense guys. They're into every game they ever played. They can come out and tell you what people have done for the last three or four at bats, what pitches they're looking for. Uh, the information that like Keith Hernandez would give me when I'd walk out on the mound was unbelievable. Uh, he He could tell me what people were looking for and what they weren't hitting, and I, you know, I try to, I'd, I'd be saying, well, there's no way that's, you know, not. I wouldn't be saying there's no way it's not right, but I'd be saying, well, that sounds good, but I don't know if that'll work. But I would try what he said, 
And man, I just have to smile because it would work about every time. Yeah, and those were the days before video too, so it was a lot more based on memory back then, right? Oh yeah, yeah. I, you know, I don't ever remember seeing anything on video. Yeah, well, that's a big disadvantage back then that you guys had. Now, now, tell me about Davey Johnson. How'd you like playing for Davey? Davey was a great manager. He was a player's manager. Um, he understood what it took to go out there and do the game. He he had one rule, and that was, well, he said, don't embarrass the team. Two rules. Don't be late, and don't embarrass the team. And as long as you came out there and played hard, he, he appreciated what you did, and he, you know, he wasn't scared to use you. Yeah, he used you a lot, too, and you were good for him. So 1987 is the next year, then. July 2nd, you have a two-hitter against the Reds as a starter, and then pretty much from then on, 87 and on, the next six years at the Major League level, from 87 to 89, obviously, with the Mets. Now, how about that? those first playoffs in 88? How special was that for you, getting the pitch in that? Oh, man, that was really great. You know, I I never dreamed that I would um, ever get a chance to play in any kind of big league playoffs. I never thought I'd ever be in any big leagues, to tell you the truth. My <laughs> my object was to make it to double A. And then to get to to be there and, and play in the playoffs and uh, against the Dodgers and all, it, it was really great. And I got to pitch and I did well, so that just kind of made things <laughs> intensified a little bit more. Well, now, a few months back then, also in 88, got to give you a plug for your hitting. August 31st of 88, you had the biggest hit of your major league career. You had a double and drove in two runs. I'm betting you probably remember that pretty well, don't you? I do, yeah. that was. I, I thought I was coming into my own there. <laughs> <laughs> I feel sorry for the pitcher giving up hits to me. Cause I had not hit since I was in a freshman in college, really, and... Uh, now, when I was in high school and all, I led the team, and, and uh, I was the fourth-place hitter, home runs and, and batting average. And, but when I got to college and after my freshman year, they started the DH. So I never picked up the bat again. And then all of a sudden, here I am. They got me in the National League, and I'm a starter, and I'm having to swing the bat a little bit. I was, I was a little rusty, to, to say the least. Yeah, wasn't that the pitcher too that like got lost coming to the stadium or something? And then yeah, yeah. Um, oh my goodness, he was for the Braves. He was uh, from the Dominican Republic. <laughs> Tall, skinny, had long hair. He was funny. Um, got lost. He bought a car while he was playing in Atlanta, and it was the first day he was driving to the ballpark, and he got on that I two seventy five, and just kept going around in circles around Atlanta. <laughs> And uh, he was supposed to start that night. He missed his start because he couldn't find his way to the stadium. And then that night that he was up in New York and pitched against me, uh, he, he gave up two, the two hits, a double and a single against me. And the Braves were going to Montreal the next day. Uh, but somehow or another, he, went up, he, he came up AWOL, didn't show up. <laughs> I guess it was embarrassment for me getting two hits on him. And uh, he just... He just decided not to go again. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Well, okay, so June 9th of 1989. So the Royals are in a race with Oakland, and they want help in their bullpen, so they trade for you. So so take us back to the day you found out then. you know, Where were you at when you got the news you were coming to KC? Who told you, and then what was your reaction about that? Right. I was with the Mets, and we were in Pittsburgh playing. I, I, I think we just got in like the night before. And uh, a bunch of the guys had, and myself had gone out to eat lunch at a little restaurant we liked downtown, and we were sitting there eating. And Davey Johnson walked in 
and sat down at the table. And it's kind of unusual for him to show up where we were eating lunch or anything like that because he was usually doing some, some other things that he had to do. And he pulled me to the side, and he told me, he said he just wanted to tell me in person that uh, the Mets had just made a trade and that I was going to the Kansas City Royals. So it was a little bit of a shock because I, I felt like I would be at, you know, a Met for a long, long time. I had played in the minor leagues for him a good bit. I had been pretty successful for him out of the bullpen. I was, I was a cheap player. I was not expensive at all. I, I never made a lot of money. And I didn't get in trouble. I, you know, I kept it clean. And I tried to, to do the best I could. But um, ended up I was one of the kind of first few that got traded out of there. Now, what did you know about the Royals at that point? Uh, absolutely nothing. Because <laughs> I had all National League all my life and didn't know too much. And, and I was trying to find out something about the American League the night I – you know, when I went to the ballpark that night to, to clean out my locker and get all my stuff up, and I, I found Rusty Staub, who I, I knew had played in the American League, and I wanted his advice, so I, I asked him what was it like in the American League, and he told me, Terry, it's baseball. Just go do the best you can. And I just, you know, that that was the only advice I got, and I, I went into it with an open mind and just said, I'm going to keep trying to do the same things I've been doing. And you had some early success with the Royals. We'll talk about that here in a second. But, okay, so the first time you, you come over to KC, you come in that clubhouse for the first time. What was the atmosphere like in the Royals clubhouse, and then how were the guys? They were super nice guys. They were all very relaxed. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. It was cutting up. Uh, Bo Jackson was in there, and he, he was an Auburn uh, boy, too, just like myself. So it was good to hook up with another war eagle like that. And then uh, I'm sitting right next to Steve Farr. He was my, my locker mate there. And um, I was impressed at the nice, how nice the locker room was and how big it was and comfortable. And, but I noticed how there were not a whole lot of people in there because in New York it is just slammed with reporters and writers and radio and TV and, and celebrities. And, you know, the presidents used to come in and – all sorts of things going on, and we're sitting there, and there's one radio man and one uh, newspaper reporter. And I, I just really, I had to lean over and ask Beast. I said, Beast, does anybody know we're playing tonight? <laughs> and I, it was just, it was very low-key, way different than what I was used to, but I tell you what, those boys could play some very good baseball. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Bo Jackson, so I like to ask Bo Jackson stories. So the most amazing thing you ever saw Bo Jackson do, and then you know what was he like? Uh, Bo was very nice. Um, he, he was just a specimen. That's all I could ever say about him. The way he was put together and, and, the, and the things he could do that he didn't even have to try. He, just, he could just do things. And one of the one of the best things, you know, like you said, some of the special things he had done. Actually, one of them was while I was pitching, you know. So I really have a good memory of this. We're playing in Kansas City. I I got called in to pitch in relief, and at this point, I had not uh, been pitching that well for a few, you know, for a couple of games. I'd kind of lost some rhythm, and I, I I knew I needed an inning without giving up a run. I needed a shutout inning just to get myself going again. And so we're playing the Yankees, and I come in to pitch, and I get my first two outs uh, pretty quick, pretty easy, and I'm feeling pretty good about myself. And then um, Mattingly comes up to bat, 
And Mattingly always gave me a whole lot of trouble. He, I mean, he didn't hit home runs or anything, but he'd always get his little single out to left field, a little flare. And I was trying to come up with something a little different to, to fool him and, and get him off stride. But so, I, so first few pitches I threw him, and he did end up hitting a high fly ball instead of a little line drive out to left field right down the line. And I, I knew with Bo's speed that was going to be no problem. Bo t- takes off to go catch it. He's coming up there. And just before he's getting to it, he grabs his hamstring with his hand, and he starts limping. And the ball falls in and hits like right on the the uh, foul line. And you know, in KC with artificial turf, boy, it just takes off and goes all the way to the left field corner. And you know, I, I'm in shock because I was so happy. I thought I was going to get out of that inning. Now I'm looking and I'm seeing Mattingly round first base and he's rounding second base and he's going to third and he's hitting third and they're waving him on in. Poor Bo is still limping on back there trying to get to the ball. By this time I'm back behind home plate trying to watch the whole thing. Bo finally gets back there, picks up the ball, turns, doesn't, really, doesn't take a crow hop or anything, just turns and throws a seed to home plate and throws Mattingly out at the plate. And I'm standing behind the catcher, jumping up and down and screaming and yelling. It looked like the the last out of the World Series to me, you know. And and and, and but Bo was just outstanding on what kind of an arm. I always say he did not have very good mechanics throwing, but he was so strong that it was just like if you had a ping pong ball in your hand and you throw it and how it kind of comes out light. You know how the wind catches it, yeah. like it doesn't go well. He threw the baseball like that. He threw it so hard, it was like a ping pong ball coming out of somebody else's hand. <laughs> it, it, it was, he was just that strong. I'm assuming the best athlete you played with? He is the very best athlete, yes. He could do so many things. I heard people comparing him uh, to um, uh, Sanders. Um, Reggie? No. Uh, uh, Dion. Dion, my yeah. fault. Yes, couldn't come up with that. With Dion, uh, you know, Bo, I think, probably still holds the uh, 60-yard dash record in Alabama. Uh, and he was a 235-pound man compared to Dion being, what, 190 or something, yeah. 195 maybe. And Bo was just way, way more powerful. You know, to me, he, you know, like in football, everybody was trying to kill Bo. They were all hitting him. And he just get up. You know, the guys were telling me about this in Kansas City when they come watch him when um, when he when come to play the K, uh, KC in football. That he'd get him down along the sideline, and they said guys were just taking cheap shots at him and you know punching him, whatever. Said he'd get up and just trot right on back to the huddle, like nothing was happening, and, and get the ball and go again. And you know, Dion playing defensive back most of the time, he's just kind of um, he had he had to have speed and talent and all this, of course. But he just didn't have to have the same toughness like Bo had. Yeah, Bo was the man. Well, I, I tell you what, can I, can I tell you one kind of off-colored uh, story about Bo? Yeah, of course. <laughs> this is this is kind of funny. This was spring training. Um, after that first year, I was with with the uh, Royals, and, and um, well, actually, this is when I was with uh, Chicago. I'm sorry, it was when I was with Chicago. Okay, yeah, you and on. and Bo after his hip replacement was playing there and it was spring training and it was in Sarasota and I lived in Clearwater at the time and I would drive back and forth every day uh, to spring training and my nephew was staying at our house with us and he was about uh, 10 12 years old 
and he asked if he could go to spring training with me one day. And I said, sure, I'll, I'll take you over there. Back in those days, you know, everything was low-key. People roamed right along the sides of the um, practice fields and all. They just had it roped off a little bit, and everybody was nice and courteous and enjoyed watching. I said, yeah, just come on out. I'll watch you I can, as long as I can see you. Everything will be fine. So we're pulling up to the um, – to, to the stadium there, and we're about to go into the clubhouse, and, and my nephew, Charles, says, can I meet Bo Jackson? I said, of course, Bo's a friend of mine. I'll introduce you when we get in here. And we go in, and they got these two big double doors that you walk in. I, we push these doors open, and we walked into the little hallway there, and there's a water fountain as soon as you walk in on the right-hand side. And Bo was standing there getting a drink of water, but he was butt-naked. <laughs> <laughs> Having a drink of water, and I said, Charles, Bo Jackson. <laughs> there he is. <laughs> so that's how my nephew met Bo Jackson. <laughs> that, that's a story for the ages right there. That was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah. So <laughs> that's great. So did, did, have they told you much so when you first came over, Sherholz and, uh, and uh, Wathen? Well, home? they, you know, they just kind of welcomed me in. Uh, I think they believed. They were trying to make a push for the, you know, to win uh, – the pennant that year, and I think they thought that I might be able to help in the bullpen to help give them a few wins. So um, they they were happy to have me, and they were always real nice to me. Um, John Walton was always super nice to me, gave me you know many chances, and and had confidence in me, and I really appreciated that. Well, you hit the ground running with Casey. You got a win in your, your first relief appearance. It was, you know, four innings of two hit against the Angels. Then you had three starts with the Royals. One of those was at Chicago where you had seven innings of five-hit ball. Do you remember any of those uh, starts with the Royals? I remember a few. I tell you, I, you know, I do remember that. I think that was against Chicago, the White Sox, I believe. Yep. And then I know I had I, – well, I did. I had two up starts. One was against the Rangers, and it was Nolan Ryan. And for some reason, that kind of psyched me out. I have no earthly idea why it bothered me that I was pitching against Nolan. I said, I don't have to hit against him. Right. You know, but the fact that I, Nolan Ryan, he was, you know, just very impressive to me. And it, and it kind of set me back that I was going to have to pitch against him. And then I think my last start was in New York against the Yankees, which, again, you know, that was kind of a – I was kind of awestruck being in Yankee Stadium and get to start there. Um, so those, those were my those were my starts, and I didn't have great ones. I had the one good one, and I had um, one mediocre and one bad. <laughs> so so I guess that's why I didn't get to start anymore there. Well, you had 18 consecutive scoreless innings with KC that August, also. So, and but I'm sure one memorable thing to you, I, I know I've heard you tell a story before, is the night you were coming home from the ballpark and, and kind of tell what happened when you saw it was raining hard. Kind of paint the picture of that story. Right, we had, we had played that night and we had gotten the game in, and I had gotten a save. It seems like we had had a rain delay or something, and I had to go back out and and they let me finish up the game and got a save. And then on the way home, I was going. Uh, down the interstate, and I was heading towards Overland Park, and it was raining just seriously hard, and then and I could see the cars coming towards me. All of a sudden, I see one starts whipping around and, you know, spinning around in circles coming down the uh, the interstate the other way, and all of a sudden, it goes off and into the medium, and I see it comes to a stop. So I went on up, and there was a uh, an exit not too far up, and I hit it and turned around and 
came on back down the other way and climbed out of my car and waded through the water. It was up to my knees or, or so uh, trying to get to him. And, and he rolled down the window, and there was a man and his wife, and the wife was pregnant, very pregnant. And I didn't know if they were trying to get to the hospital or what or just trying to get home. But anyway, that, that kind of worried me. So I ended up getting in behind the car and, and pushing him. I'm on my feet pushing through all this mud and water. And while I'm still pushing, I, I hear some noise. And I turn around, and here comes another car spinning around and coming off into that same medium. And it I'm kind of worried it's going to hit us. I mean, it's getting that close. It ended up about 10 or 12 feet from us and stopped. And so... I ended up, I kept on pushing this car, and I finally got him moving and got him to a little solid ground, and he started taking off. But when he started moving forward, me pushing, I slipped and fell face frontwards into the water, and my hands go down into the to the water, into the mud, and I was wearing my AAA World Series that I had won when I was with the Mets in Tidewater. And when I stood back up, the ring was gone. It had pulled off my hand, you know, kind of sucked out in the mud. But I I didn't move. I kept my feet in the same place, and I tried to reenact what I had just done. I just kind of fell back down in it again and came back up with my ring. I found it down in the mud, and like I said, it was pitch black, dark, because it was after 12 o'clock at night. So that was very good. I ended up putting that in my pocket and then going and helped pushing that other car, getting it out of the, the uh, medium at the same time. So I got to save at the ballpark and a couple there on the interstate. <laughs> I love it. That's a great story. Now, one other thing about that 89 season. So you guys were so close. I mean, you won 90-plus games, and you know, but those great Oakland days back then, so there was no wild card, obviously. So you know, how frustrating was it not to catch Oakland, and how fun was that team to play with? Well, it, it was. I was I was real excited, you know, to, to think that I was coming over to a team that we were going to make some playoffs, and we, we we were getting real close. And I remember being out in Oakland and playing, and then we we would lose the game, and that you know that's a that's losing a, a full game right there, and that always hurts. But um, you know, everybody, we took it in stride. We we understood. We we started a little bit back, and we had we're trying to catch them, and, and it's tough to do. Like you said, they were a great team, but with um, with guys like George Brett on the team, he always kept guys loose. He was a riot to be around, and um, just Frank White and Willie Wilson, these guys, they were veterans. They they knew how to approach the game, how to play the game, and they knew how to, you know, unfortunately, how to accept uh, when you don't come out on top. Yeah, yeah. Well, now one thing I just thought of randomly that you mentioned there about you know losing a full game and disappointment. How about you as a relief pitcher? You always hear that you've got to have a, a short memory. You know, if you blow a game the night before, I'll be ready the next night. How hard would you take some of those games? I mean, with time, did you learn to let them go easier? Did you lose sleep some nights? And how were you able to get over a loss? Oh yeah, sometimes when you haven't been pitching good for a while, boy, it gets to you. But you're, that is true. You have to have a short memory. You got to forget that because that's over. And they're going to want you back out there quick again, and you you can't sit there and ponder on the past. You got to think about the future, what you're doing right then at the present, and what's going to happen right after this. Because you have to plan ahead a little bit. You have to think ahead. And I, I tell you, who was one of the best ones to me um, at as as forgetting what went on the night before when I was with the Mets, Roger McDowell. What a card he was. He could give up the game-winning home run one night and come back in the next day and be doing practical jokes and 
putting his uniform on backwards and upside down and walking out in the stands and doing any crazy thing he could and then come out and just pitch break that night. He would just totally forget about it. And that was a great example for me that I would take that and learn off it. You know, you did bad one night, that doesn't mean you're going to do bad the next night. So you have to keep your head up and, and go out there and do the best you can. Well, you came back to spring training with the Royals in 1990, but then unfortunately they released you right before you broke camp. So was that kind of a surprise or something you were expecting? Well, it was a little surprise because I was pitching pretty good. Uh, I felt good. I, I was in really good shape. I had really tried to wanted to come back and show them that the year before I had been okay, but I could be a lot better. And But they made some trades and had different ideas and wanted to use some people. So they they kept them and let me go, which, you know, that's one of those things. Well, is it a good thing or a bad thing? You never know. Right at that moment, I was thinking it was a bad thing. But then I go, and through my agent, I get a chance to go over to Orlando, where the Twins had spring training at that time. And they were about to break camp that day. Uh, this was like two days after, I guess, after they had released me from, from KC. And I get to go in there, and I'm going to throw for them and, you know, as a tryout. And usually you either pitch in a game or you throw bat in practice. You know, you have some of the hitters come up. My tryout was in a bullpen, and I had to throw against the manager, Tom Kelly, <laughs> standing in there like a hitter. And I, I'm thinking, just please don't hit this guy because I would have no chance if I ever hit him. So I, I threw him in there. I had some good stuff working. My sinker was working. My slider was working good. And so um, they they told me, thank you for coming. They'd let me know something. And from what my uh, future pitching coach, uh, Dick Such, told me, he said that TK came in there and told him, he said, well, we got better stuff than anybody we got right now. We're going to take him. So that's how I ended up going to the Twins. Well, 1990 and 91, you were there. And 91, World Championship, you get the ring. And I know that it, it, sometimes it seemed like you weren't ever going to make it in that World Series. But, I mean, how fun was that World Series? And, and talk about what you remember about pitching in that. Oh, what a great time. You know, we had a great great team, uh, really strong pitching staff, strong hitters, you know, very consistent. Kirby Puck, Puckett, to me, I've said this many, many times. Kirby Puckett was the best baseball player I ever played with huh. or against. I think he, he, he could just do everything, and he was such a pleasure to be around. What he appeared to be, like in commercials or on TV or interviews, that's the way he was in person. He was a genuine gentleman and, and a great teammate. And playing with these guys, it, it, it was – it was great, and we we finally did win it. We had to go through a 15-game winning streak to jump from, uh, like, next to last to finally get up into first place, and then we held it on until the end of the year, and we had to play Toronto in the playoffs, uh, in the first round of the playoffs, and we beat them three out of the first four games, and I did not get to pitch in any of those games because our starting pitchers would go so deep into the game that it would just jump to our closers, <laughs> And Rick Aguilera and any, I can't remember who else he was using right then, but Aggie was basically it, uh, closing the game out, and us middle relievers weren't getting the pitch too much. So we finally, you know, we win that, and we're now we're going to the World Series, and we've already played a game, and I didn't get into that, and I'm a little disappointed because I, I was the oldest player on either team. 
which the announcers announced the first time I ever did get in a game. Uh, I, I, I said they could have said anything in the world, but why this is the oldest player on this team. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so we are out there like during batting practice uh, at that second game, and I was talking to Carl Willis, and I said, you know, I might have to go just grab TK and hold him up by the collar and shake him and tell him he's going to have to put me in somewhere. He said, I said, this might be my last chance to ever be in a big league. So like I said, I was 30, 35, 36 years old at this time. So I, I knew the odds of me getting back were going to be pretty pretty slim. So anyway, we go on. Uh, the second game goes by. We win both games in Minnesota. Did not get in any one of those games. Now I'm starting to get a little worried. But we go into Atlanta, and um, we start. We get into that game, and the place is packed. There's 60,000 people, I guess, in Atlanta Stadium. They're all doing the tomahawk chop. That's the first year they really started doing that. And we're playing. We get into about the fifth inning, and we're behind, I think, by two runs. And um, Atlanta is at bat. There's two outs, but the bases are loaded. And Mark Lemke is coming to bat, and Mark Lemke's hitting about 500. And Dave West was pitching in the game, and he had walked a hitter before that. So TK is taking him out, and he looks down, and he gives the sidearm sign, and they bring me into the game. And I'm I'm kind of wondering, you know, what's going on, because he never brings me in against the left-handed hitter, which Lemke was a switch hitter. And I get up in the game, and... The place is packed, and I'm I'm feeling a little nervous. I run up there kind of confident, put my glove out, and TK just sticks the ball in my glove, and I'm wondering what the heck is he doing putting me here. And he says, just do the best you can. <laughs> and he turns around and walks off and leaves me standing there. I said, okay, we'll do that. And Brian Harper was my catcher. He went on back and started catching, and I warmed up a little bit. And I'm thinking about it, and I'm thinking, you know what? I might give up a grand slam. But I said, I'll be dang if I'm going to walk a run in here. That is will not happen. So Lemke gets in, and after the game, I had talked to my friends about what was going on. And I had 13 friends in the in the stands in Selma, Alabama, is only about four hours away. I had a bunch of people come over, and they said at that point of the game, it was the loudest that the stadium ever got. Said the tomahawk chop and everything. It. They said the, the Braves fans were just really getting into it. And they, they they asked me, how did I, you know, how did that noise affect me? And I told them, I said, I'll tell you the truth. I could see my catcher, and I remember seeing the face of the umpire down close to my catcher's head. And I remember just the inside line of the hitter standing, just the, like the front edge of him. I said, after that, I didn't see anything. And I don't remember hearing any noise at all. Huh. I just said, I'm just going to throw his thing as hard as I can and hope he doesn't hit it. Threw him four pitches, struck him out, and then I was happy to get out of there. <laughs> just <laughs> let me get on in the dugout. Let me sit down here a minute before I fall down. Yeah, well, that's kind of like the For Love of the Game, the movie, where he clears the mechanism and can't hear anything except for you know him and playing catch with the catcher. It, it, was that normally how it was during your career? Or was it just... That is. That, well, if you're going good, that's how it did. you remember at the end of that movie when he has trouble clearing the mechanism? Yes, yes. And he's, and he's having a tough time pitching. Because your your concentration, your your spread out, your thoughts, your your vision, everything is all over the place. And when that happens, it's hard to pitch. But if you come out there and you can stay focused and you get that little tunnel vision going, that's when you that's when you're going to do your best. And when you stay relaxed, 
that's what I tell these kids that I work with and, and um, try to teach pitching to. Whenever you do your best, whenever you have a great game, I said, think about it. Once you relaxed, once you having fun, or were you tense and straining? And they said, no, we were just, you know, relaxed and pitching. I said, absolutely. So try to remember that. If things aren't going good, take a deep breath and don't try to go harder. Pull back a little bit and relax. Take it a little bit easier and see if you won't get it back going again. Yeah, well, that's that's cool. That's good advice, too. So, okay, so after 1991, then you sign with the Expos for 92, but then they release you at the end of spring training, and then the White Sox come coming, or come calling, I should say. 92 and 93, you're there, and very good, especially in 92. You had a 195 ERA in 51 games. So what are your favorite memories of your days there on the south side of Chicago? Well, I tell you, I got to be with my buddy, uh, uh, Big Ben, and uh, Bobby Thigpen, and uh, then I got to meet a lot of the other guys. I didn't know them. I didn't know many of the guys on the white side at, the, at that time. Carlton Fisk was my catcher, one of my catchers. So that was a great thing. He's a big boy. I never realized how big he was till I stood up beside him. And um, it was it was great to me because I got to get back out on grass. Being in Minnesota on that astroturf. I just didn't think that was, you know, that was not good for the type of pitcher I was trying to get ground balls. But when I got back out on this grass and in the fresh air like it was, boy, it just kind of, you know, revived me a little bit. I started pitching better. I felt good. And like you said, I had a very good year. In fact, the pitching coach that year, at the end of the season, he was doing an interview with with, uh, a sport writer, too, and the, the writers asked him, well, who did you consider your MVP as your your best pitcher this year? And they had Jack McDowell and, uh, like I said, Thick Pin, and they, they had a bunch of guys that could pitch. And, and uh, they actually said, he said, uh, I think it was Terry Leach was, was my MVP because I had every time they brought me in, I was on and, and just had a, had, a, had a good year. It was just a great year. Well, at the end of 93, so you're 39 years old at that point, but then you still went back to camp with the White Sox in 94, but then they release you and you spent the rest of 94 at home before one more comeback attempt in 95 with the Tigers. So before we talk about the Tigers, what were you doing uh, during 94? Uh, well, I went to work with Health South, which is, uh, probably, well, at that time, at least I know it was, the, the, the largest rehab corporation in the world. Uh, they They helped people get back to work. If somebody got injured at doing their job, they would rehab you, not that you would just get well, but that you would be better and be able to do your job. And they were big into sports rehab also. And I went to work there and did a program with them called, um, oh, heck, what, I forgot what we even call it now. That's how long it's been. But it's <laughs> uh, peak performance, peak performance. And I would go around to different cities and have trainers and doctors and uh, I'd have other ball players come in and speak, and we would give illustrations on, or, or demonstrations on how to take care of your arm and exercises, and we'd have dietitians and all this kind of stuff come in there and talk about diet, just trying to keep, uh, trying to inform the coaches of Little League players and high school players on how to keep their kids, you know, fit, and physically fit and, and uh, healthy so that they could continue to play the game. And then you ended up in 1995 trying to make Detroit. So how did that come to be? Well, that was the year that they had all the replacement players. And I've had two or three teams call me 
and asking me about, you know, come on back out and be a replacement player. But, you know, baseball, you know, the, the, had been very good to me. And I, the union and the players, and I could not see coming back out and doing that. Um, but I did want to play. And at the time, David Cohn, who is a good friend of mine, an ex-Kansas City player, um, was very big in the negotiations up there in New York. And so he knew everything going on. So I gave him a call and talked to him. And he told me, he said, Terry, do this. said, uh, if one of those teams are really interested, ask them if they'll let you come into the minor leagues, which the minor leagues were not on strike. It was perfectly fine to go there. And he said, if they want you there and you go through spring training and whatever, when the season does crank up, because he said it will crank up, the replacement players will not work. And he said, then when you are ready and everybody else is in a little bit out of shape, they will use you. And I said, well, that's a great idea. And Detroit did uh, take that chance. They, they, they let me come spring training, and Sparky Anderson was the manager, and I thought that was very good for me because Sparky liked older players. And his, uh, his hitting instructor while I was there, Hitman Herndon, pulled me over to the side one day, and he, he's very soft-spoken. He says, Leachy, let me tell you, said, every time – you pitched against my boys, you put them in a funk for two weeks. <laughs> and so I'm feeling like, well, good. You know, he, he appreciates what I do. And even the bench coach with Sparky told me that they had talked about me in the years before that every time I pitched against them that I did well and that they were going to have to work to get me on their team so I wouldn't be able to, to, uh, to, to pitch against them anymore. So I felt like I had a really good chance at making this team but it came down to, well, you're 40 years old, you're old, and we need to use younger kids. So um, I think age discrimination should have been. I could have used that. But, <laughs> but uh, so that was, that was my last uh, professional team that I was with and last chance I got to play. And the best part that did come out of it was my daughter, who was only about five years old at the time, got to um, – she was at my, the game that I pitched my last inning. Uh, at spring training with Detroit, and I had a nice three-up, three-down inning. It was very good, and she got to see me pitch that, and that, that was the last time she ever saw me play. Oh, that's cool. And, and does she remember that, too? I think she remembers a little bit of it. I think she does. I'm going to go ask her about that. Yeah. <laughs> She's 25 now, so I don't know how that memory is going. <laughs> there you go. Well, so was it, I mean, did you kind of go through a grieving period where you, was it hard to walk away easy, or, you know, how was that for you? A little bit, a little bit, because I thought I could still play. My arm felt great. I had come off a Tommy John's operation, but I had healed up extremely well, where it usually took guys about 18 months before they could pitch again. I was pitching at full speed after six months. Um, Dr. Andrews, uh, James Andrews out of Birmingham, you know, the the guru, the, the man for yeah. orthopedic surgery, had done the operation on me, and he used to call me. Uh, after I'd left Birmingham and I was back up in Florida, back down in Florida, and he would know what I was doing because I had to check in with him, and he would tell me that I set a new standard at rehabbing, that um, now that he could see that we could that, that you could heal up quicker, but you know I had great trainers. I had Larry Mayo, uh, very good Christian man that was uh, my trainer when I was in New York, and he had uh, his own uh, company in St. Pete. And he rehabbed me, and I mean, he works you. When when Larry Mayo gets through with it, you are a man. <laughs> you can you can do about anything, and and so with his help and the, and the great surgery by Dr. Andrews, 
and um, just being blessed. I came back very quick, very well, never had any problems, again, with my elbow. But it's hard to convince teens that when you're 40 years old and just had surgery, major surgery, that, that everything is fine. They're not used to seeing that. So the White Sox had already hired uh, another long reliever, and I believe they were just kind of set on having him. So they let me go. They tried to trade me to Colorado, but that fell through, and then that was the end of it. And, yes, it was. I, I wanted to keep playing. I wanted to play some more. I thought I had at least three or four more years in me. I love it. I love it. That's that's a bulldogger right there, right? The one of the ball every day. I loved it. Yes, indeed. Yeah. Well, last three questions for you, and thanks again for all your time. The, uh, I guess the next one is when you look back at your career, then what are you most proud of You know, all these years later? Well, the fact that I was not drafted and made it through all the minor leagues and where where people that are drafted high, one and two draft picks, you know, they – number one and number two, they, they're going to get the first shot at going up. And myself and a lot of the other guys that I were with that uh, were not high drafts or even just got picked up in some ways, just to make it up there, you, you, we always said you had to do twice as well, twice as long. Yeah. And that was about right. And I was proud that I could hang in there and do that and, and got to stay. And then, you know, then there were the personal parts of it where the 10-inning one-hitter I threw against um, – Philadelphia, and then, of course, uh, well, I, I was injured while we won the World Series with the Mets, so that was a little disappointing. But then with the Twins, when I did get to participate and p- pitched in two games, got to run and jump around on the field, got to shoot the champagne all over the place, that was you know, definitely a hot spot in, in my baseball career. Now, how about Kansas City? Have you, have, uh, have you been back here since playing here? No, I have not. Uh, just don't make it up that way very much, you know. Um, I'm pretty much down south and maybe up the eastern seaboard to New York. <laughs> you know, that's about the only places I go. Uh, someday I would like to get out there. I love what they've done to the stadium and putting in the, the grass. I think that's a great thing. And that's just when they were showing the World Series this year and they had the uh, aerial views of it, I was just thinking, man, that's got to be one of the prettiest stadiums there is. They just really – take very good care of it there. So someday maybe I hope to get back out there and, and uh, take in a few games. Yeah, bring the family out, you know, make a little trip of it. We'd like to. We'd like to. We loved the town. Like I said before, that was a – the people were super nice. The way everybody acted was great. You know, they they were very friendly and down home, uh, very much like in the South. So that it made me feel at home. Wasn't there a story about your wife in the grocery store or something like that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when when, uh, when we were in New York and she had just had a baby, we had just had a baby when I got traded about two weeks before, and we had our 12-year-old daughter, or her 12-year-old daughter, Carrie is my uh, stepdaughter, and we also had a uh, her cousin, Kalisa, staying with us, and we are living in New York, and my wife, Chris, would have to go to the grocery store. And their grocery stores, man, you're pretty much on your own. You, they, they check you out, and they just slide the food down, and they got this little lever. They flip it, and it, start, it, it like splits the lane and starts putting the other people down the other side. <laughs> so you got to get in there and bag your own stuff up real quick, or it gets real jammed up. And she just thought it was just, you know, barbaric the way they did that. So when we came out to Kansas City, like I said, we were, we were living out in Overland Park, and she would go to the grocery store there and 
she'd go in and she'd pay for it. And the first time there, the people says, okay, here's your number. And she didn't know what it was, but what come to find out, she was so happy. She said, all I had to do was go get my car and pull up and give them my number, and they would load my groceries into the car for me. She said, this is so civilized out here. She was ready to move out to Kansas City right then, just because of that fact right there. And, uh, and, and the beautiful places we were living in, the rolling hills and the green grass. I told her, well, honey, it would be beautiful to live here. I won't mind. If you want to move here, we will. Except for you're from South Florida, and I do not believe you're going to get along with the winners here at all. <laughs> Since anything below about 72, she's freezing. So. <laughs> oh, that's great. I love it. Well, last thing for you, you know, is what would you like to say to all the Royals fans listening right now? Well, I just want to thank them for the hospitality they extended to me and giving me the chance to come out there and play. Wish I could have stayed a little longer and maybe helped out a little more, but sure did enjoy it. And you got Ed Hearn out there still. I, I talk to Ed every once in a while, and he's, he, he loves it out there. So um, hopefully one day I get to come back and, and say hello to a few folks I met out there. Absolutely. When you do lunches on me, a beers on me, whatever, it'd be great to there you great go. to meet one of my childhood <laughs> heroes one day out here. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate you. Yeah, thanks so much for all your time and all that you gave uh, to the Royals organization, and, and definitely stay in touch. And I look forward to reading your book, by the way, too. Well, very good. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much. Take care. Thank you now. Talk B- to you later. Bye-bye.